Thank you, that was wonderful. Probably looking at me saying, what are you doing here? Um, so on Thursday morning, they got an idea, and then Friday morning, I knew for sure Jack was sick. And he said, you're preaching. And so I rejoiced greatly, <laughs> but not too much, Jack. So it is good to be with you. Let's pray and commit our time to him. Again, we are in need of your grace, O God. Grace sufficient for us. Grace that unfolds the truth in a way that we can apply what we hear today. I don't know what every person brings with them as they walked in this morning, Lord, but you do. And you desire for every heart to walk away changed by your truth. And so to that end, I pray that you would give the people ears to hear and you would help me to communicate in a way that I ought so that the word would run rapidly and be glorified. I commit this time to you for your sake. Amen. Have you ever thought what it would be like to attend your own funeral? You ever wonder what people would say? What would they say about me? Uh, if, If you could eavesdrop on... People, as they got together and wrote up your eulogy, what they might choose to honor and remember, what funny memories they might recall from their time with you, what kinds of things they would say. If they were to sit down with the people at Forest Lawn or somewhere else and they were going to think of some uh, epitaph to write across your tombstone, what do you think they would say? What would you say? What would you say if you were to sit there and look back at your life and think through your days and think through how they were spent and think through what your life meant and how it worked and how God worked through you and what it counted for, what it amounted to, what would you say? What would you think? I don't know if you've ever walked through graveyards, but sometimes it's interesting to stop and read some of the epitaphs that are on headstones, and some of them are pretty sober, but some of them are pretty funny. And I found a list of epitaphs that I thought might be interesting to you. Robert Keats said, Life is a jest and all things show it. I thought so once, but now I know it. Alexander the Great, a tomb now suffices for him for whom the world was not enough. Benjamin Franklin, his is more famous. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents turn out and it's stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms, for it will be, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition corrected and improved by the author. Will Rogers said, if you live the right death, if you live right, death is a joke as far as fear is concerned. Virginia Woolf in her certain uh, prosaic way said, against you, I will fling myself unvanquished and unyielding, O death. (laughs) The severity of life got her. How about Spike Milligan? I told you I was ill. (laughs) I like that one. Robert Frost said, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. Martin Luther King Jr., you might expect this one. Free at last, free at last, mighty, I'm free at last. Mel Blanc, the creator of Looney Tunes and the voice of Bugs Bunny. That's all, folks. (laughs) I like that. It's great. Here's a few unknowns. What I spent, I lost. What I possessed is left to others. What I gave away remains with me. It's a neat perspective. But I hope you wouldn't want this one. Here lies a miser who lived for himself, who cared for nothing but gathering wealth. 
Now, where he is and how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. <laughs> Some cynical husband wrote on his wife's, here lies my wife, so let her lie. Now she's at rest and so am I. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. On Beza Woods headstone, somebody wrote, here lies one wood enclosed in wood, one wood within another. The outer wood is very good. We cannot praise the other. Ooh, my favorite. <laughs> here lie the remains of Anne Mann. She lived an old woman, but died an old man. <laughs> That's great. Some of you are thinking, I died an old man. M-A-N-N. It's her last name. Here's one that was sober, but became funny when somebody added to it. Remember, man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you must be. Prepare for death and follow me. Somebody added, to follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> that great? There's Carol right there. <laughs> Boot Hill Cemetery in Tombstone, Arizona. You know there's going to be some fun ones in that one. Here lays Butch. We planted him raw. He was quick on the trigger, but slow on the draw. <laughs> if you're a dentist, you might think about this one. Stranger, tread this ground with gravity. Dennis Brown is filling his last cavity. <laughs> That's good. And then, of course, in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Then there, of course, are those famous last words, words that are said on people's deathbed, and some of them are funny, and most of them, though, are cynical and, and crass as people come to the end of their life and see the vanity of it. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor, said, so little done, so much to do. Is that true? So little done and so much to do. Queen Elizabeth I, all my possessions for a moment of time. She would have given everything for just one more moment of time which slipped out of her hands. Some of these epitaphs and famous last words are defiant. Some of them are funny, but they all say the same thing. Death is coming. The reality is that you and I will face the certainty of death. And, and as you read these epitaphs, or if you read others, you'll find that people write about their experience in life and what they anticipate on the other side of the grave. People will write concerning maybe lessons that they want you, the passerby, to carry with you, something from which you may glean. But again, I ask the question, what would you say in your final moments? If you were to look at an epitaph, what might you write down? What things might you want to be remembered by? Will you look back at your life and say that it was spent in the best possible way? Would you say that you gave your life away to the most significant and lasting things? Or would you look back and say, what a waste? Which will be yours, your spiritual epitaph? Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90 is our text for this morning. The author of this psalm is Moses, written about 1400 B.C., which would make this psalm the oldest psalm in the Bible, about 3,400 years old. But as old as the psalm is, its relevance to us in the 21st century is very, very acute. We feel it. Moses is writing near the end of his life, just before he died on the hills of Moab. And he penned this psalm, as you know, after a, a glorious career of leading the people of God and then handing them off to Joshua, the new leader of Israel. 
And as he writes, he ponders the triumphs of having been used by God in great ways and also recognizes his own limitations that his sinfulness afforded him. And he writes to leave some final last words based on his life. In fact, what we're doing is eavesdropping on Moses' last words. We're listening to him and getting lessons from his life. He addresses the issue of living life in a fallen world as a fallen man and what we should expect as redeemed people. How to have perspective in life is the essence of this psalm. How to make sense of this vain reality so that we can live for maximum impact. James chapter 4. James says, our life is a vapor. It's what happens when you go out on a cold winter day and you blow in the air. That's the essence of your life. It evaporates and it is gone. It dissipates. The issue Moses raises in this psalm is how to maximize that vapor. How do you take that little vapor, that little steam off of of a Starbucks cup of coffee? How do you make the most of that little steam? How do you, as he says in verse 12, number your days to make the most of them? Well, this psalm is about living for eternity as a redeemed person in a fallen world. And Moses supplies for us six ways in which we can make the most of this vapor that we call life. Six guidelines to make your life count for something. If you were to walk by Moses' grave, I believe in this psalm, he would say, I want these six things written on my tombstone for anyone who passes by who will live forevermore. These six guidelines without which this life makes no sense. Number one, you want to maximize your vapor? Find your security in God alone. Find security in God alone. Look back down at the text in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses begins his final descent, as it were, by calling on God. The God who you remember met him in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The God, the great I am, who began to unfold himself and reveal himself in Moses and set him apart for himself that he might proclaim this wonderful eternal God. And he begins to call on this God, the one and only true God. The God who he says in verse 1 is our dwelling place. He says, you have been, verse 1, our dwelling place. A dwelling place is a place of refuge. It's a place of security. It's a place of comfort. It's a place where you would hide from danger. It's a place where you could find protection and support and even provision. And he says, God, you are to me those things. I look around the world and all of its emptiness and all of its vanity and all of its fallenness. And you yourself are my security. That's what he's saying. And what he reflects on is what he's seen God come to be for him. And for, as he says in verse one, all generations, the generations prior to him, this same God was a dwelling place. And for all generations, he will forevermore be our dwelling place. The only place where we can hide the only place where we can be secure. Truly from everlasting to everlasting, he doesn't change. He keeps his faithfulness because he is a covenant keeping God. And in verse 2, he says, God, this is a reality before the mountains were born. Before any mountain peaked or before you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You're the only dwelling place. And Moses reiterates that. But he does it in a very interesting way in the Hebrew. In fact, in verse 2, when he says, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, the word earth there is translated the land, the, the, the crust, the stuff you walk on, the, the pavement under your feet, the, the stuff that you stand on. That, as stable as you might think it is, is not as stable as God, who is our dwelling place. 
And then he says, before you gave birth to the earth or the world, the word for world, interestingly, is the inhabitants where we dwell. You know what he's saying? God, you have been my dwelling place long before you ever made the place I dwell. Do you see the implication of that? What he's saying is, God, you have before you even made our homes and all the things that are secure to us, supposedly. You've been our dwelling place. That, that we don't look for anything, even before, the, even before the, the creation of the world, God, you were the dwelling place. You've always designed it to be that. And you created the things in this world with that in mind so that we would never trust in those things as our security, even before the fall. But how, how much more after the fall has God spring-loaded the things we trust in to fail and disappoint us? God is our dwelling place, and he has always been and always will be the only dwelling place, the only security. He draws our focus in, Moses does, on the character of God and says, look to God when you see the, the frailty and the emptiness of life. Look to God who is powerful as creator, who is faithful as covenant keeper, and who is eternal as unchanging God. He is this God from everlasting to everlasting. Because he doesn't have a beginning or ending point, he is always the same and always has and always will be this way. For him not to be our dwelling place would be for him to not be God. And so Moses says, he's all that you need. He's the only stability that will last. His durability as the faithful God is what you need, not people, not circumstances. Your spouse is not your security. Your job is not your security. Circumstances working out and going your way is not your security. You'll find out where your security is when those things don't go your way or the things we prop ourselves up on that we think are secure, God kicks out so that we fall flat on our face into his from everlasting to everlasting security. There is no security in a new governor. There is no security in a 401k. There's no security in the national defense or a Scud missile or an F-14. There's no security in the stock market or good health or a life insurance policy, or health insurance, or homeowner's insurance, or earthquake insurance, or whatever other kind of insurance you want to add to that. There's no security in those things. The only thing that is secure is God. And the only thing you can commit to to be secure is the will of God. That's the implication. It's not your job performance. It's not the approval of people. It's not having all your questions answered. That is not where your security lies. Your security, Moses tells us, isn't the one and only true eternal God. Because you can't trust in those or you'll be disappointed. Only the character of God can keep you. Every other security you would hope in would be a mirage. It is genuinely not secure. The only thing that is secure is God. And, and what that means is that your life is nothing without God. Your life is, is at best wobbly without God. And if you hope in this life or you turn to yourself and try to account for all the frailties and the issues of life, in a fallen world, without God, you will be sorely disappointed. And you will have a cynical epitaph. And you'll give your life to pine away at things that won't last, that fade away. Where will you turn when all those things fail? There's only one place you can turn, and that is God. And every single uh, day, every, everywhere around us, we, we have visible reminders that the only thing that is stable is Him. He alone is as our security. And so Moses then adds a second way in which you can make the most of your life. Number two, ponder your own mortality. 
When you come to understand who this God is, you begin to see yourself in light of him. And the contrast is, I guarantee you, very stark. The contrast between this eternal God and us is overwhelming. In fact, in verse 3, we pick up Moses' thought. You turn man back into dust, talking to God. And say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes, sprouts anew, and toward evening, it fades and withers away. Why? Verse 7, for we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? You see Moses give this this sweeping contrast. It's black and white between the, the eternal permanence of God and the transitory weakness of men. We're finite. We're frail. And the reality is that man, Moses is saying, is unlike God because man dies. He dies. Look back at verse 3. God turns man back into dust. The dust from which God originally made him. In fact, in Genesis 2, 7, if you were to read there, you would see that God formed man out of dust and breathed into him the breath of life. It's not, it's not about man that, that we find our security. It's, a, it's about God in man that, that makes us stable. Man is not what he is because of himself, but because of who God is. As Thomas Watson said, what is man but the son of dust and what is dust but the son of nothing? That's the reality. We're all dirt clods. We're dust. You ever take a dirt clod and throw it? As soon as it hits something. In fact, we're so frail that Job 4.19 says that we are houses of clay built on foundations of dust and are easier to crush than a moth. You ever crushed a moth? Crush a moth, turns into powder. You ever notice that? I notice that. It turns into powder. It just. And Moses says, our lives are snuffed out. As easily, easier than if you try to snuff out a moth. It's overwhelming. We're frail, we're weak, we're limited, we're bound. And so God commands us back in verse 3. He says to us, return to dust, O children of men. Now, there's a, there's a way in the Hebrew to read this that would carry the weight of what he's saying even more than probably the translation you have says. If you were to read this in the Hebrew, it would say like this, you, verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of Adam. The significance that saying Adam brings to that tells us why it is that we are dust because we are descendants of Adam. Adam himself was the one that was made as a dirt clot and we descend from him. But moreover, Adam sinned. And not only are we credited with the guilt of Adam's sin, we are born sinners. We're born dying. Your birth certificate has an expiration date on it. And your life will end. And the reason your life will end is because you are a sinner. And each each day gives testimony to the reality that because of our sin and, and the fact that sin has tainted this entire universe, it is passing away and we are passing away with it. 
We are living dust and sinners. And we're not like the eternal God. I mean, look at verse 4 here. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, God. I mean, you take 12 of our lifetimes and add them up. And God says to me, that's like yesterday. Now think about yesterday for a second. If I ask you, I give you maybe five, ten minutes, you could tell me probably exhaust all of your memory of yesterday. When you think about yesterday, it's just, it's just this little faint memory that goes. And, and a week, two weeks later, you'd probably have to pull out your daytime and organizer to see what you did. And the busier you are, you, you probably ask him, what is today? I don't even know. But you take up 12 of our lifetimes and God says, that's like yesterday to me. It's just that passing. It's that fast. God is not bound by time, but we are. And every day reminds us how bound we are by it because every, tick, every second that ticks off the clock ticks away at our life until it ends. Those of you with gray hair have told me the longer that you live, the faster it goes by. Amen? Amen. And so verse 5, what he does is, is 5 and following, gives us an idea of how transitory we are. He, he talks about how our life is like a, a watch in the night, how, how a watch in the night, if you divide the night up into segments, there were four-hour segments, and they were called a watch. And, and he says that that's, that's the duration of our life. It's just like those little segments. They're, they're here, and then they're gone. It's, it, it's over. And he gives us three different analogies from verse 5 and 6 to describe one thing, our impermanence. We are impermanent. Look at verse 5. You've swept them away like a flood, talking about men. You swept them away like a flood. Uh, when a flood comes, things move, right? You ever seen uh, uh, images on the Weather Channel? A flood comes by and it washes cars away with people in it. It washes homes away. And the aqua treads you thought were good don't work. And you get carried away. Even the most permanent fixtures get carried away. You see people clinging on and holding on as hard as they can. And they are swept away. You know what Moses is saying is you look at the flood and you're the little styrofoam cup on the top. Just floating away. Carried away. That's your life. That's how impermanent you are. Being washed out to sea. And then he tells us that we are like men who fall asleep. This means that, that, that our life passes us by just, as, just like when we go to sleep. Now, I know all of you identify with this. Yet, have you ever gone to bed and collapsed, put the alarm on as you're collapsing, and wake up in the morning and say, I felt like I just went to sleep. You ever been there? That's what he's saying. That our lives are like that. They're, we get to the end and we say, in the morning we say, is it morning already? You know what happens at the end of our lives we say? Is that... The end already? Is it over now? I feel like it just started. Your life is about as long as the dreams you had last night. And then he says that we are like grass. The kind of grass that Moses is talking about now isn't the kind of grass that you might have in your front yard that's watered every, you know, eight hours or whatever. The kind of grass that would, would be described by Moses here. Remember, Moses was where? Before he went in. The desert. Grass doesn't grow very well in the desert. And, and in the arid climate of the Middle East, especially, you don't find grass very often. And, and what, what Moses is saying here is we are like that kind of grass. There is a kind of grass that will poke up. It'll, it'll kind of poke through this parched land. And it'll give the appearance that it's going to maybe do something. But then the wind, the hot winds, the Sirocco winds that come over top of it cause it to fade and wither. And by nighttime, it's dead. That's what he says when in verse 
5 and the second part of verse, or the part of verse 6. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. He's talking about what happens when you're born. You come out and you have life. You're full of life. But you know when you come out, you're already dying. Somebody says to you, I'm dying. You know what you should say? Me too. Right? You're dying. You may get bigger or shorter, or, but you're, you may be somewhere along the line in the curve, but you are dying. And you sprout anew. You have new life in the morning. In the early parts of your life, you flourish. You seem to have this, this vigor, this strength about you, but when evening comes, the twilight years of your life, it fades and withers away. What's the reason for this? Verse 7. We've been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath, we've been dismayed. Verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Death and futility, he is saying, exist because we are sinners. Because we sin, and even though we're redeemed, there is still a sense in which the curse is on us. Now, death will become the hallway into life for us in that respect. But because we, even though the penalty of sin is removed and the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin still remains and God is still holy. And God still sees our sins. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And so we die. When we die, of course, we enter into a sinless existence, a perfectly righteous existence if we're in Christ, or a perfectly futile existence if we're not. And so the holiness of God still causes us to see our sin. And it says in verse 7, when we do, we are dismayed. The word literally in the Hebrew is terrified or panicked. It's what Isaiah felt when he was spitting teeth because he was on the ground so fast and hard in Isaiah 6. When God put his face in the gravel because he showed him his holiness, that is what we experience because we're still fallen. We still are touched by iniquity. And so God sees all of our sins, even the secret ones. And even though redeemed, there's still a sense in which we are longing for the subtraction of sin's presence when God comes again for us to take us to himself. But the reality until then is verse 9 and 10. All of our days have declined in your fury. The reason our days are running out is because of your fury. Verse 9, we have finished our years like a sigh, like a whisper. You ever stood by the deathbed of somebody and you had to lean in and you had to cup your ear to hear them because they didn't have enough strength to talk? All they could do was whisper. And you had to strain to listen. That's how you end your life. That's it. It's kind of a... Your life is gone that fast. We end our years in a sigh. So we see that life is truly a vapor. In verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or of strength due to 80. This is a general principle. Most people will tend to live between 70, 80 usually. That was true 3,400 years ago. It's true today. The lifespan hasn't really changed. In fact, uh, insurance companies gamble that women, you're going to live to 78 and men, you're going to live to 74. Moses got it right. And it's still holding. It's still true that we tend to live, generally speaking, about 70 or 80 years. And so here's an exercise. Take out your pen. And ladies, I want you to write 78 on the top of your page. And men, I want you to write 74. And I want you to take the age that you are now, and I want you to subtract that from that number and come up with a total. The number that you have left is the years you have remaining, if God wills. Because some of you, especially the younger ones, are going to go, hey, only a fourth of the way there. No problem, man. I got my whole life in front of me. 
Remember the moth. Some of you have a negative number. Some of you are on borrowed time. But for all of us, the reality is this. Every time you breathe in air, Thomas Watson said, you suck in mercy. You suck in mercy. That's the reality of the transitory nature of our life. Because of who we are, we're so limited. And we're so frail. And every time we get sick, every time... We see somebody die every time you turn on the news. It should be a reminder to you that we are mortal and we need to think about that. We need to realize that seconds are ticking off the clock that count for eternity. I knew of a man one time that kind of did that little exercise I showed you. He put the answer, the total on the top of his uh, desktop on his computer and he put it on a countdown thing where he would subtract the, the milliseconds. They would go and he'd have a countdown. The, the number of years he was expected to live. And then he'd have the seconds ticking off. And then he'd have the minutes ticking off. And then he would see hours and days. And as he looked at that, you know what happened every time he looked at that? He felt the urgency of what it is to make the most of your life as it's passing away. He wanted his life to count. And as those seconds ticked off the clock, he knew they would never come back. He knew that those were seconds that were gone for eternity. And the question to ask is how were they spent? Were they spent well? Were they spent for that which is permanent? And if you wait till you say, I mean, I got so much time, then you're traveling on the train to worthlessness on the tracks of procrastination. And you better jump off because the train will not stop to let you off. You have to realize that time is ticking. As the hymn writer said, For a thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its suns away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. That's the reality. All of us know and all of us will face. And so don't let your frailty result in you trying to prolong your mortality. Because you can't. You can't. Let it drive you to God so that verse 11, as it says... It will drive you to the fear that is due him. He says, who understands the power of your anger? I mean, if you really understand this reality, the power of God's anger that has now diminished your life and your life is is continuing to shorten and shorten and shorten every day and understand the the power of his fury. In verse 11, you will understand the fear that is due him. You will understand that you are responsible to bring your life under his authority and live according to his word. And so you see, you have to feel this tension. And and you live in this tension. If you feel the tension, that's a good thing. Because much like a slingshot, if you you, you don't have the tension of your own mortality held up against the wooden uh, uh, plaque of God's security, you will never be launched into number three, which is this. Refine the use of your remaining days. Refine the use of your remaining days. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days. If this is true, so what? Well, so teach us, God, to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. When we understand this reality about God, it teaches us something. It teaches us to number. Now, you know the word number here in the Hebrew? It means to count, to calculate, to add just what you did. Just what you did a minute ago. He says, teach us to figure out what we got left and to use those days for eternally significant things to give our lives away 
to the most permanent thing that there is. How do you make the most of your days? Well, according to Moses, this is something that only God can teach us. So what that means is when you come to the Lord, when you sit down uh, before the Lord, you have to take that number that you just came up with, realizing the flexibility of God's sovereignty, and, and, and lay that out and say, okay, God, these days are not mine to spend as I want. These are mine to use for your glory. You don't think about uh, spending an hour without thinking about how it glorifies God. And so Moses in, this, in verse 12 gives us a couple of ways that we can do that. How we can have, if we number our days, we can present them to God as with a heart of wisdom. Look at verse 12 here. He gives three perspectives on numbering your days. First of all, it's an act of worship. He says, I want you to present, uh, he says, present uh, your days to God out of a heart of wisdom. The word here for present is a word borrowed from the sacrificial system. The idea of you laying down these days on the altar as an act of worship. You're worshiping God with the use of your days. You're worshiping God with your time. That's what he's saying. If you feel this tension, you will live in a way that causes you to lay your time down on the altar. But secondly, your heart is the offering. It's not about a schedule and a daytimer necessarily, because you can have all those things nip and tuck 15 minutes. Every 15 minute and 30 second segment of your day is, is organized and set. But if your heart is not right, then it's a blemished offering. God wants your heart. God says, bring your heart and put it on the altar on top of your daytimer. Number your days and bring to him a heart of wisdom. It's not going out and buying a Franklin Covey planner and learning seven habits of highly effective people. Now, those things may help you on some logistical level, but the issue is your heart. The issue is, do you have a heart that desires to use your life for that which is eternal, the will of God? Uh, the third observation he makes in verse 12 is that your days are to be guided by wisdom, that, that when you lay your, your, your heart down on top of your daytimer on the altar to God of living sacrifice, you are to say, God, I am taking my day and my life and ordering them according to your priorities, according to your will. I'm going to take wisdom, that is, the skill of applying God's word to daily life, and I'm going to make my life reflect that. That's what he's saying. I want to present to you a heart of wisdom, having numbered my days aright. So the point, of, the point is, is that when you're looking each day of your life, you wake up in the morning as an opportunity to lay your heart on the altar before God, committed to use every second you borrow for his glory and putting his word into specific use. That's all we mean. And so the fair question is, does your life reflect God's priorities? Does it, does it feel the weight of your transitoriness in God's glory? Is your day filled with eternally significant things? Can you write a scripture verse next to the things that you've done that are eternally significant? Or are you just drudging through another day? You're a slave to your palm pilot, your palm beeps, you go. That's it. You're going through the motions, you're going nowhere fast, running on the treadmill of the futility of life. No, no. He says, I want you to give your life to wisdom. And perhaps you feel the tension of strain upon you and, and, and you as a redeemed person, you're going to reckon with the fact that I, I want this and I desire this, but I'm still a sinner. I still sin. I still live in a fallen world and you want this, but maybe the concept seems foreign to you and you can only wish for it. Well, Moses adds a fourth way then for you to give your life away to eternity. Number four, cry out to God for deliverance. Cry out to God for deliverance. Look at verse 13. Do return, O Lord. I love that. 
Return, come back. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Moses is doing what we all do. We lament when we look around and see the the vanity and futility and the barrenness of this life and our own sinfulness. And he is saying, Lord, I want you as the deliverer to come. I want you to come. And he says, moreover, what I'm longing for you to do when you return is verse 13. Be sorry for your servants. Have compassion on us. In other words, we see that you have afflicted us. We want one day for you to overturn that. We're longing for the day where the the dangers that we experience and because of sin and the affliction and the persecution and the iniquity in our own bosom. We long for that to be removed. Return. And when you return, bring your deliverance with you. This is what the psalmist uttered in Psalm 6, verse 3. And my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Rescue me. Deliver me. Or Paul in Romans seven twenty four, who said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? There was an aching and a longing to be set free from the futility of life and the sinfulness of sin and the ugliness of his own flesh. It's a longing for deliverance, but yet it is a vote of confidence in God's timing because he does say this after he says, teach us to number our days. He's not just saying, get me out of here. He's saying, help me to be faithful to number my days until you come. Your timing, God, your provision is what I need. And if you do this, you're not going to be disappointed. In fact, you will be the most fulfilled sinner on earth. This side of heaven, because this opens the door to another hallway of making your life count. Number five, pursue satisfaction in God only. Pursue satisfaction in God only. Verse 14, listen to Moses. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days that you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. Moses uses the imperative mood. You know what that means? He's praying so fiercely that it's, he uses the voice of command. He's not commanding God. He's just saying, God, there's no other way for me to express how deeply I long for you as my satisfaction and my joy, my treasure. I'm longing for you, O God. And I'm asking you, yea, commanding, if you would make me satisfied in you. Being satisfied in God is the inward delight and joy in God because of who he is and what he's done. You cannot come face to face with this God and yawn. You come face to face with this God and you are overwhelmingly struck with the value and the treasure of who he is. And the fact that this God would open to you his loving kindness. Loving kindness is the word in the Hebrew hesed, which means uh, God takes two words, love and kindness, and weaves them together to produce what we call mercy. God's mercy. He says, God, I know that I can only be satisfied in a relationship with you when you extend to me your mercy. Now, why do we need mercy? Well, verse 3 to 11, because we're sinners. And so you, you read verse, verse 3 to 11, and you see the, the, the slingshot being pulled back. And you see him let go and we fly into satisfaction with God. No created thing can satisfy like God can satisfy. Money can't, popularity can't, sex can't, vacations can't, computers can't, people can't. Nothing can, not even your home. 
And so what he's saying here is I am celebrating who you are, God, because who you are has now been revealed to me through your mercy. And it's an all satisfying thing to me, God, to be known by you and to you. It's wonderful to know you. And the greatest demonstration you know of this mercy is when God himself came in the form of Jesus Christ as a man to endure the wrath of God meant for you so that in exchange you might have the hope of heaven, have the floodgates of God's mercy open to you to carry you to heaven. That's the reality. And the quality that you know of life with this all-satisfying God is all of his grace, as we sang this morning, and all of his mercy. It's his love and kindness woven together, dripping on your head. This is what, this is what Moses is saying. See how satisfying it is to know God. Psalm 63, David said the same thing. He says, God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In fact, he says in verse 3, because, listen to this, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Is God's character to you better than life? It'll show up in the way you live your life. If you say, God, your loving kindness is good, but not as good as the sin then you don't treasure and prize him. Your satisfaction is not in him. But if you look at sin and you say, that is a cotton candy pleasure that I will not stuff into the cavern of my soul, my soul can only be satisfied in God. That is what it means to embrace what Moses is saying. And that's why he says in verse 5, David does, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Now look back down here at verse 14. He wants God to fulfill his every heart's desire with God's character every morning. He says, in the morning... Satisfy us in the morning. Now, the reason I want to stop here and land for a second is the concept of morning appears all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the writer, by using this term, tries to express how the afflictions of his life and the emptiness that he has seen all around him because of sin bring in a dreariness and a darkness and, and, and threats and dangers and distresses. And he yearns for God's mercy to come in and penetrate that darkness. Those things have brought a shroud of darkness that he wants God's mercy to illumine and chase away. And so that's why he prayed, verse 15, make us glad. <laughs> make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us. God, overturn. We have been afflicted. Overturn that and make us glad. Make us glad. Moses knew that the darkest night is just before the dawn and every day God's mercy is the hope that a new day of triumph will come and will pierce the darkness and the light will shine brighter than it has ever shined before. And it'll chase away the shadows of sin and burn off the clouds of despair. That is what he's praying for. And there's no greater joy in his heart than that. And the question is, is this you? Is this you? Because if it's not, you won't make your life count. You'll give, your way, you'll give your life away to things that don't last and don't matter. Every reminder that you see because of sin should prod you to live a life of satisfaction in God alone. In fact, you should let the emptiness of life, when you see it, be to you what a spur is to a horse. It may hurt you, it may prick you, it may cut you, but it should compel you to ride harder after God. That is the essence of what you, when you look at this empty life, you should be compelled to do is turn away from its vanity and find satisfaction only in him. And when you've done all these things, there's but one thing you lack. Number six, leave the results of your life to God. Leave the results of your life to God. Verse 16, let your work, God, appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. 
Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. You know what he's saying? The results of your life are ultimately not up to you. The results of your life are determined by God. The thing that you have to decide is to be faithful. That is what God calls you to, to be faithful to these five principles. In verse 16, he says, God is at work in your life to put himself on display. In verse 17, he says, there has to be a healthy balance in the way you approach it. You have to realize every moment is lived in verse 17, God's favor, the favor of the Lord upon you, his grace, with a commitment to persistently ask him to confirm the work of your hands. You know what the word confirm means? I love it. It means make permanent. Make what I do for you and your glory last permanently. Make it last forever. Make it be eternal. Confirm it. Support it. Strengthen it. So that maybe this is an epitaph or a final last word you might say. Tis only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Better than writing across the front, it was a waste. Jack London said, I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. That should be the attitude of a Christian who takes that sanctified by the word of God and lives his life in a way that the things he's given over to count. And that little dash between your birthday and your death day on your headstone was lived to the fullest. And if you're here and all of this is foreign to you and none of this makes sense and you don't know how your life is going to be spent because you don't know Christ, you have no security. You, you pursue satisfaction in things that won't satisfy. You, you try to prolong your life and your mortality. If that's you, I want to point you to the, the refuge of the mighty cross. I want to point you to Christ and call you to wash all your sins away and call you to come to the Savior who alone is able to rescue you, not only from the vanity and the futility of life, but the vanity and futility of yourself and your sin that has separated you from your God and his eternal wrath. Because if this is not settled, beloved, if this is not settled, you will enter into an eternity of irrevocable futility and a wrath inexhaustible, the likes of which you couldn't even stand to see. While the God, while the, while the God of grace and loving kindness holds open the door to heaven and forgiveness, will you come? Will you fly to the cross? Will you take his death for you in exchange for your empty sin? What about those of you who hear who already say, that's me. I've done that. I am forgiven. Is your life given over to one endless triviality after another? Or is it said of you, and could it be said of you when you pass? He or she maximized their vapor. Father, thank you for this word from Moses. Thank you for the sober thought and reflection of what it is to see endless futility around us, but how wonderful it is to see that you have provided a way of refuge, a dwelling place, so that we could confidently pray, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, 
Be thou our guide while life shall last and our eternal home. Make that our reality for Christ's sake. Amen.